Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So we're going to jump straight to the point here. Earlier this week, AOC, also known as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, was being interviewed on stage and someone asked her about climate change and her response inflamed the Republican Party in a way that I haven't seen in quite some time. She said that if we do not address climate change in the next 12 years, that the world is going to end. They, of course, took this literally because that's just kind of what they do. And they said that she was being ridiculous and hyperbolic and so on. But what AOC was really trying to get to was that we have about 12 years to fix the problem of climate change or we will suffer the consequences indefinitely. And so I decided this week that we should have an expert on the show to talk about just that. My guest today is Peter Brandon. He's an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Wired, and The Boston Globe, Slate, you name it. He has an incredible book out called The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. And what he talks about in the book is the five mass extinctions that have happened over the last several hundred million years and how they are pretty analogous to what is going on today with what's happening with climate change. Stick around after the show to hear John Kelly and I talk about what's happening inside the Vanity Fair newsroom with regards to Donald J. Trump, what's happening with the White House, the government shutdown, when this is all going to end, and if Sheryl Sandberg's PR campaign to try to fix Facebook is actually going to work. So I'm very excited to welcome him to the show. He's incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, uh, and this is a book that I picked up and couldn't put down. So here we go. Peter, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, this is a topic that my listeners know I'm a little bit obsessed with. Um, but before we get to, of course, my obsession, I'm just curious, how did you come to deciding to write a book about all the different ways that the world could come to an end? And uh, what brought you there? Um, so, I'm a science journalist, and I sort of got my start in science journalism writing about the oceans and anyone who writes about the oceans, um, you know, it's sort of a depressing topic because there's all sorts of things going wrong from overfishing and coastal pollution and future threats like warming and this thing called ocean acidification, which is what happens when uh, too much CO2 reacts with seawater. It actually makes it more acidic and it makes it harder for things that build their skeletons um, out of um, calcium carbonate to, you know, stick around. So this is going to be a huge threat in the second half of the century when coral reefs and some kinds of plankton are going to have uh, trouble uh, surviving in some parts of the world. And so I was writing about all this stuff. And then I did this uh, fellowship at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which I like to think of sort of as like the NASA for the oceans. Um, You know, it's sort of underrated, but it's such a cool place where there's all these researchers working on these cool topics. And it really, there, um, a few people were working on looking at ancient climate Um, and ocean chemistry sort of disasters in earth history to tell us about our future. And for me, I just thought that was so interesting that, you know, you, a lot of times you hear about climate change as this thing that happens on computer models and it's theoretical and it all happens in the future. But for me, when I heard that, you know, the earth has already run this experiment a few times and sometimes it's been sort of catastrophic and all we have to do is go back and study earth history to sort of, uh, learn some lessons about our possible future. I thought that was really interesting and sort of a part of the climate story that hadn't been um, amplified enough 
that a lot of these models that we're making today we verify by going back and trying to um, so, test so how against, do you yeah. how do you like uh, forgive me for sounding like a complete moron here but how do you how do we know that x number of years ago um, you know x million number of years ago that the earth did go through this where the ocean heated up and you know yeah uh, it was cat- catastrophic to the life that exists on earth and 90 percent of it died and so on what are the things that uh, that scientists have discovered that have pointed them to that so there's all sorts of ways you can see that there was warming in the past um for one thing you can sort of i mean from the simpler and you can study fossil plants and you know if you suddenly see that there's tropical plants living way higher up in latitude that might be a signal but there's also these brilliant geochemists who have figured out all these ways to analyze rocks like limestone where you can look at isotopes and they'll tell you you know it got it's a little it takes some ingenuity and it's not completely constrained but you can at least tell that the world got a lot warmer during these events and you can look at other things to see that oh there was this huge injection of carbon into the atmosphere in the ocean so um it's not unprecedented what, what we're doing today uh, which some people might say, oh, well, it's natural, it's happened before, but you don't want to recreate these these catastrophes. <laughs> so what's it, So there's been, how many extinctions have there been before? Is it six or seven or how many, does, what do we know? It's sort of, you know, the word mass extinction is kind of vaguely defined. There are at least five times where maybe upwards of 75% of life on earth goes extinct in only a few uh, thousand years. So that's like, that might sound like a lot, long time, but geologically, that's like uh, an eye blink, basically. But there actually might be more more than that. Um, there's minor mass extinctions or things that we don't quite understand. So there might be up to like uh, almost 20 sort of brief catastrophic events in the last half billion years that there's been animal life. But there's five big ones that really stand out. And And there's a theory that we're now in the midst of the sixth one? Right. So that is definitely a concern um (laughs) i mean humans have definitely had a a pretty horrible influence on the environment basically since um for the last 10 few tens of thousands of years um so there's this concern whether we could actually eventually engineer something that's in the same category as these totally ridiculous events where you know a, a a gigantic asteroid or an entire swath of a continent um, basically is covered in volcanoes or whether we could actually engineer the same sort of environmental effect as these huge outliers in all of Earth history. So one of the things that you write about in in your book, which is so fascinating, is, first of all, putting it into perspective of how long ago it happened, you know, one million years ago for the Triassic mass extinction. Yeah. Is that there are, even though it's not humans that created the catastrophes that existed in the past um the the you know there's one i forget exactly which one it is and i'm sure you'll be able to tell me i think it was the triassic maybe where uh there was so much plant life after the dinosaurs had died there's so much plant life that um we start creating more co2 which makes the oceans warm and and so on when these things happen are they quick or are they slow or is it is the version that we are going through now because of all the emissions we put into the air quicker than any of that have happened in the past so i'm not i'm not totally positive which one you're referencing but yeah i mean there's there's um there's debates and obviously a lot of science that goes into figuring out how fast these things take place so for instance with the dinosaurs 
there's some people that would argue, you know, the world ended in 15 minutes and it was all the asteroid basically. Um, that this, when the asteroid hit, it ejected so much rock into, um, you know, orbit basically that when it came back into earth, it heated the planet by. Wait. So before you, before you get to this, it's one of the, like the best passages in the book where you talk about (laughs) this asteroid. Can you walk, walk our listeners through this asteroid moment? It's so fascinating how quickly it may have happened. Yeah. So I think in the book, I compare it to sort of these Hollywood depictions of an asteroid impact where you, I think I say it's like this smoldering charcoal briquette that, you know, just sort of slowly, leisurely makes its way across the sky and then hits the planet. When the asteroid hit that wiped out the dinosaurs, it would have been, you know, a nice day, one, one second, and the world would have been over by the next. Um, it was gigantic. It was going, I think, something like 20 times faster than the speed of a bullet. So um, it would have gone from the height of a passenger plane, so like 30,000 feet up, to hitting the planet in 0.3 seconds. So, you know, if you're a dinosaur watching that, you don't really, there's not much to look at. It's, it's just catastrophic. And then even when it hit, it was so big that the top of the asteroid might've been, I think something like a mile above the height of a, of a passenger plane. So it was just this, it was this thing, the size of Mount Everest that was going, you know, many times faster than a bullet. Um, and so I, I asked one impact modeler, actually, what would this have looked like if you could see it hitting? And he said the question didn't really make sense. So, like, if you're a dinosaur um, in Alabama, say, on the coast, looking in the general direction of Mexico, the first thing you would notice is, you know, you'd go blind and you'd be set on fire, basically. You wouldn't have seen anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, so you couldn't have actually seen it. And you see, you see all the – what I think is so funny is you see these uh, artist depictions where um, you'll have some, like – uh, triceratops or something looking over its shoulder like, huh? When it sees this asteroid touchdown, but that just, it, it would have been so quick and catastrophic that that wouldn't have really happened. Got it. Okay, yeah. so getting back getting back to the <laughs> blind and burned to death. Uh, dinosaurs, um, you, you were saying that the uh, the, of course, there's, there's the moment where the asteroid hits, but there's also the Earth heating up and how long that would take and so on. Yeah, so a big catastrophic event happening in Mexico, which is where the asteroid hit, can't explain why things go extinct all over the planet. So people have invoked all these other um, ideas, one of which is when all the rocks that were ejected into space returned on the other side of the planet, they would have basically put the atmosphere to like a broil setting basically for like 20 minutes or something. Um, so, so that could explain why burrowing things uh, like mammals might have might have made it through is that they could basically get out of this pizza oven for for the duration of it. And then on a like decadal time span, uh, all the dust that would be up in the atmosphere might've blocked out sunlight. um, So then you might've shut down photosynthesis and that could explain why things went extinct. But this, uh, you know, single kill mechanism explanation, which is still, you know, the smart money is still on the asteroid. But the crazy thing is about this mass extinction is that the exact same time that, the asteroid hits in India on the other side of the world, you have one of the biggest volcanic events in all of Earth history. And it's a volcanic event of the same sort that seems to have caused almost all the other mass extinctions. So um, that's just fascinating to me and um, kind of part of the reason why I wrote the book. So you also talk about 
in the book, um, in the section on the near future about things that are happening right now is, you know, there was a period in time when, you know, the, um, the earth was, was much warmer and there was right. less ice on either poles and therefore the, the sea level was, was hundreds of feet higher. If something like, you know, it seems like we hear all these, all these things about the fact that not only is the ocean heating up and even, I mean, these are not just coming from science, you know, climate change people, they're coming from people who are even deny climate change and are saying, mm. oh yeah, so what, the earth is heating up. <clears throat> it seems like when you, when you look at the data and you look at how quickly the ice caps are melting and things like that, is one of the worries that, um, that the sea level rises across the planet and there is less place, there are less places to live and therefore that is one of the things that could lead to the beginning of the end of our extinction or make us, you know, fewer humans on planet earth. Well, sea level rise is definitely a gigantic problem for civilization. Um, we've for thousands of years, we've been building, um, big coastal settlements and now cities and now mega cities. Um, so even a few inches to, a few feet will really disrupt that for civilization. And this is actually uh, an important point that I make in the book is that I think a lot of people conflate a proper biological mass extinction where, you know, 75% or more of species on earth go extinct with the end of civilization. And I actually think the end of civilization could happen um, earlier than that, just because we're this huge network society that has, um, you know, is really complex and has national borders and things like this. And you can imagine that if we get a little bit of warming, it could really throw things off. But um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been warmer in the past, which as you said, is something that you'll hear deniers say sometimes, um, which is true, but I don't, I don't think they really understand what they're saying because um, in fact, it's been much warmer in the past. So about 50 million years ago, there were palm trees and crocodiles in the Arctic Circle, basically at the North Pole. Um, and if we keep burning fossil fuels for, you know, another century, we could actually recreate that world. So it took hmm. mil- millions of years for the planet to cool off from that f- epic. And if we were suddenly to thrust ourselves back into it in the next few centuries, given that we have national borders and mass migration and all that stuff... Could civilization, is it resilient enough to withstand a, a just completely ridiculous uh, fluctuation like that? I don't, I don't know. Whether it would cause a mass extinction or not, I have no idea. But it would certainly stress civilization to a point where I, I don't know whether it could adapt. So you, get into like some of the realities of what you think might happen in the next few years with with climate change and what's happening. It, you know, I mean, one of the things you, you, as you just talked about that a lot of people. F- fear is kind of what we're actually seeing happening on the border with, you know, Trump wanting to put up his little wall that, right. <clears throat> you know, in South America, there is not the economic opportunity there is in America. You can blame that on the governments and drugs and all these other things, but a large part of it is also climate. And so people, of course, are migrating north and south and primarily north. And we're seeing the issues we're seeing today. There's a scenario where, you know, if, if if you read the reports and um, 
you know, each one seems to be different. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what's what's most realistic. Um, that that happens very quickly, and you have these mass migrations. Kind of walk us through what what you think that looks like, and and what's what's realistic. Like, what is is a reality? Is, is you know, everyone leaves Mexico and and you know, Southern America or or South America. Sorry, or is it something where it happens slowly um, and we have to deal with it on a, on, a, on a much slower scale? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that sort of worries me the most is we, basic, we basically haven't seen anything yet and, and um, it already seems like we're freaking out. It, it, I just have no, have not been reassured about like sort of the stability of our political systems given that the worst is definitely yet to come and it seems like there's all these crazy reactionary movements all over the world and people are freaking out about migration. And if, you know, anything like business as usual, carbon emissions continue to play out over the f- next few decades, it is going to, um, you know, everyone's going to have to leave certain parts of the world because, um, you know, just sort of the thermal limits of human physiology will be surpassed in a lot of parts of the world and everyone's got to everyone's got to go basically um but these sorts of geopolitical and sociological questions aren't really my forte but um yeah i would just say that that's the thing that that worries me is that basically nothing has happened yet and and we're already freaking out yeah um so so, so, okay, so, I'll, so just, I'll just say so like for one example um by the end of the century, basically huge parts of Saudi Arabia, you're just, unless you're a lizard, you're not going to be able to like go outside there for more than a few hours or you'll, you'll, um, you know, you'll die of heat stress. And so if you think, what is it? So we already have 2 million religious pilgrims who, um, uh, go to Mecca every year. If you just can't do that anymore, what does that mean geopolitically? And I have no idea. So that's, those are the sorts of things that kind of worry me. So one of the things you've written about before is that, you know, it was actually a climate catastrophe that paved the ways for dinosaurs. And then, of course, it was another catastrophe that got rid of them. Mm-hmm. When you look at these climate catastrophes that have happened in the past, doesn't it just seem like it's kind of like the Earth's way of, you know, flushing the toilet and start starting from, from fresh again? Um, like it's not, it's not a bug, it's a feature in some respects? Well, in some ways, yeah. I mean, the... The mass extinctions, the flip side of a mass extinction is a mass radiation where, um, you know, what does survive goes on to radiate and take over the planet and fulfill all these open niches and develop all these cool, ingenious ways of living. So, yeah, I mean, if we do our worst in a million years, the planet will be fine. There will be, um, you know, maybe the descendants of rats or coyotes or, you know, (laughs) pigeons will go on to become predator, like super predators and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, these things only happen once every hundred million years or so. And so the idea that we could engineer one in the next century, um, if you care about humans, and I do actually think there's sort of a tendency in the environmental movement to say, oh, we suck. And this is sort of the earth's immune system and its way of getting rid of us. But, you know, I know some cool humans and I actually think that we have a, uh, a, a, a fascinating and really unique, you know, contribution to the universe is our, our our conscious experience and it would be a shame if that was if we just went back to square one after um going through with this incredibly stupid disaster that we're currently engineering 
When you um, <clears throat> when you look at some of the, the the predictions, and then there is this theory that we might be able to kind of engineer um, some sort of chemicals or things that we put into the air that could reverse things, and uh, and we can save the planet and our well, we can save ourselves at least. Do you think that that's a reality? Um, that some of the, the technologies people are discussing, I know none of them really exist yet, but they they are discussing them in theory that we might be able to kind of put something into the ocean to cool it down. Uh, and I'm not just talking about like a bunch of ice, but I'm talking about like some sort of chemical or put things into the, to the air to cool it down. Is that something that you think might actually happen? Uh, I think it might, but it makes me really nervous um, for a couple of reasons. One is that sort of the ocean climate system is unbelievably complex. And I can imagine there's all sorts of unintended consequences that would happen if we really started to try to geoengineer the climate. So you can imagine that um, so one of the things that's proposed is that we have sort of planes shoot out, shoot out these, uh, they're called sulfate aerosols, but they'd basically be things that would be high in the atmosphere that would reflect sunlight back into space. Um, so w- even though we keep emitting CO2, we're not letting as much light in, so we're managing the temperature okay. Um, but if we do that, imagine if that, it, that you know the monsoon changes or uh, you know China starts uh, having trouble growing crops or something like that there'd be a huge international uproar and people would maybe say, let's stop doing this. The problem is once you start doing that, you have to do it for tens of thousands of years. Cause if you ever stop, um, you'll have this spike in warming that I think actually could cause an actual mass extinction where it would go up, you know, four to five degrees or something like that in a decade or so. So that worries me a lot. Um, the other thing that I would say about that, that worries me is that it seems like putting tons of CO2 into the air, like we're doing, and then trying to, put in aerosols high into the atmosphere to block sunlight is basically the same kill mechanism in the worst mass extinctions of all time, where you have these volcanoes that are injecting tons of CO2 into the air and also injecting the same sort of stuff we'd be shooting out of these planes at the same time. And as soon as that uh, stuff gets rained out of the atmosphere, the CO2 makes it super hot and you have these, you know, basically the big biggest mass extinctions of all time. So the fact that we're leaning on the exact same levers as the worst things that have ever happened and this is pitched as a solution, um, you know, it just seems sort of hubristic to me and worries me. Uh, that's a little terrifying. Uh, <laughs> so you're saying essentially that if you do start this, um, because if, if, if you stop it, uh, you could have this massive spike that once you, once you pull that trigger, there's no going back. Yeah, definitely. Um, there are people who model this stuff and, you know, those papers really, really scare me. The ideal situation would be that you'd also be building these giant CO2 sucking machines that at this point sort of exist in labs, but no one has shown that you can scale this technology um, enough. What is a, what is a, a, a CO2 sucking machine? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I know there's there's um, a team at Columbia that that's developed one, but I mean, it's just a it's exactly what it sounds like. You put these giant devices, you cover the planet with them and um, they take CO2 out of the atmosphere, basically. Um, okay, so when you were when you're writing this book, you spoke to scientists all over the world. What were some of the things that you found out about and discovered that you found really kind of truly fascinating, things that really stand out in your mind? Um, well, for me... It was sort of this introduction to all these different worlds that the that planet Earth has been before. You know, we call planet Earth, 
you know, it's, it's one thing, but it's actually been many different planets over its lifetime and sort of becoming acquainted with these, um, these planets that, you know, come straight out of science fiction, basically, uh, that we've shared the same planet with, with all these different, can you, um, can you, can you tell us a few of them? Yeah, sure. So the first mass extinction happens 445 million years ago, which is so long ago that it's completely unimaginable. This is hundreds of millions of years before dinosaurs. It's hundreds of millions of years before Pangeo, which some of the listeners might've heard of when all the continents were together. Um, North America was south, mostly south of the equator and rotated on its side. And uh, Eastern New England had just rifted off the South Pole. Like it's just a completely different planet. And there's almost no life on land, but all the life is in the oceans. All the animal life is in the oceans. And um, it's known as the sea without fish because fish basically were not important at all yet. And the, fi- the ocean was dominated by these weird um, insect-like things, things like trilobites, which are sort of these... Are they like, tiny or are they are No, they no, big? no. Some of them are huge. So there were these squids, squid-like things in these giant like ice cream cone shells that were like 20 feet long. They were the top predators. These <laughs> things called nautiloid cephalopods. And they would have been eating these things that look like Roombas all along the seafloor. Um, and what was so crazy to me is that one of the best places on earth to uh, be introduced to this time period is actually Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, if you're driving on the highway and you pull over and you just look at the rocks there, um, you can just find fossils by the handful of these squid-like things and these these uh, invertebrate, creepy, crawly things, And which came as a surprise to me because my dad's from Cincinnati. I've been visiting my cousins there forever, and I had no idea that it's actually one of the most fossil-rich regions in the world. And it's there because sea level was hundreds of feet higher and North America was mostly covered in this shallow sea. Um, and so really changing my perspective that... Uh, these science fiction worlds were are basically all around you. That when you start to understand geology and you just look up what the rock is underneath you, you're going to find this incredible story of these uh, lost worlds. Basically, what was um, what was the world like when the dinosaurs were here? Was it kind of what you read about as a kid in these in these science fiction books, or or was it a little bit a little bit more intense uh, in your <laughs> research? Um, so, I mean, it's mostly like that. It was a lot warmer then. CO2 was much higher than it is today. Uh, the continents were basically in the same position because what's crazy is that when the dinosaurs went extinct, geologically, that wasn't that long ago. So that was 66 million years ago. And the one I was just talking about was 445 million years ago. Um, wow. But what's amazing is that dinosaurs were around for so long, it's almost unimaginable. They were um, they first show up 245 million years ago, and they last almost... The age of dinosaurs is um, almost 200 million years. So when you think about human beings, modern humans have been around for 200,000 years. So a fifth of 1 million years and dinosaurs are around for almost 200 million. So I like to say that the story of life on land is really the story of dinosaurs. If you're an alien coming to this planet, you'd be like, wow, this is a dinosaur planet. Definitely not a, a human planet or anything like that. So it's, it's humbling learning about, uh, about this stuff. And um, when they went, just I'm asking this for the human extinction aspect of this question, but when the dinosaurs went extinct, uh, did they, was there a world where some survived? I mean, I know we have like birds and alligators and things like that that are, that are variations on them, but was there a scenario where some of them actually lived for a little while? And, and am I right in saying that it was partially because the dinosaurs died and they, they, they weren't around to eat the plants that the earth started to get hotter again? Um, I don't know about the last part you said, but it's, de- I mean, 
dinosaurs did survive, and you hit on it a little bit. When paleontologists say birds are dinosaurs, they're not just being cute. Birds are dinosaurs. That's not a that's not an overstatement at all. Um, you know, if you look at a skeleton of a chicken compared to a T. Rex, it has way more in common with it than a T. Rex compared to a Stegosaurus. They and the reason is because they're in the same branch of of dinosaurs. So um, most dinosaurs went extinct. The the things that went on bird dinosaurs didn't. Um, but most mammals went extinct. I mean, that's the biggest. Uh, extinction for mammals in their history as well. So not much made it through. The mammals have sort of gone on to become the the big uh, dominant species in the era we live now, but there's still 10,000 species of, of, of dinosaurs flying around. Um, so you could argue we still live in the age of dinosaurs. We're just, we're just here along for the ride. Do you right. think that, you know, do you, do you think that, that we, as a somewhat intelligent species have a better chance of long-term survival or, or a smaller chance because we tend to not think about things in long terms for whatever reason? Well, so you could argue that we're sort of the first asteroid in Earth history with a steering wheel. Like, we don't have to go through with this. So um, we're an intelligent, ad- adaptable species and so we don't have to engineer our own extinction. So that's, I guess, a reason for um, optimism. But we, but we, but we do. I mean, it's like you, we, you have these reports coming out just daily now that are predicting, you know, that the Earth is warming. It's going to warm seven degrees in the next X number of years. That the mm-hmm. the rise in hurricanes. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, you could talk a little bit about that. I know you've written a lot about that. Uh, we seem to be kind of on the path the steering this thing right into oblivion and yet we don't stop ourselves from doing that um i mean is that did, is that is there something wrong with us <laughs> or or are we just kind of like okay we'll figure it out when we get there yeah i mean there's very little you can read from the headlines to inspire optimism in you in you these days um yeah and depending on what mood I'm in, I my my sort of opinion on what the prospects for for us are. Um, one interesting thing that one paleontologist told me, though, was that um, we, humans are incredibly extinction resistant. So even if we completely trash the planet, uh, you know, we might not have a networked industrial society anymore, but. Uh, I think he said he had glasses and he said Neanderthals and uh, early humans were perfectly happy for hundreds of thousands of years without without um, glasses. So maybe, you know, we get squeezed to the poles, but we're, we're a pretty adaptable, weedy uh, species, if you want to look at it that way. So even if we cause, you know, complete chaos, I think if anything survives, humans have a pretty good chance. Maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. Who knows? <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> Um, when you look at you, you wrote an article that that I actually this is how I I, um, I found you um, for uh, the Atlantic where you talked about um, how Earth's history when you look at the history of Earth is is so miraculous that this like strange cosmic reason mm. of evolution of why we're here is just so fascinating and and does maybe pretend to why we may survive mm-hmm. um, a, a little longer. Tell us a little bit about that and what you what you discovered in that reporting. Well, I started to have this thought um, 
that, you know, uh, is, have there been five? Well, so we've everything alive today has survived five mass extinctions. Um, and I started to think, um, did the planet survive all those mass extinctions because it was lucky or because I wouldn't be around asking this question if the mass extinctions had been a little worse than they were? And it turns out that there are uh, pretty eccentric people working on exactly these sorts of thought experiments. So I interviewed Anders Sandberg at um, Oxford University. And um, when I interviewed him, he had this whole thought experiment where, you know, imagine that the universe is an incredibly unsafe place where planets, as soon as they're born, just get wiped out and... um, it's very unlikely for any planet to ever give rise to anything like complex life. But the universe is so gigantic that even incredibly unlikely um, planets will pop up where people will wake up on them and say, um, you know, look around and realize that the planet hasn't been wiped out for four and a half billion years and think, wow, it must be a pretty safe universe I'm living in. But that is, you know, they only make that observation because they're incredibly lucky. And, um, observers that make that observation can only be incredibly lucky, but in a universe big enough, there are going to be some of them. So um, it's, it is kind of crazy to me that in four and a half billion years, which is just a completely unimaginable time span, the the world hasn't been destroyed and that some of these mass extinctions seem like really close calls. So the worst mass extinction of all time, the end Permian where over 90% of life on earth goes extinct. You know, if it had been a little bit worse, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Now, is that because, the planet's really resilient or just because, you know, it's sort of a tautology, but, you know, given that we're having this conversation, it means we must have survived. So it's, it's, it, it really sort of blew my mind and gave me a headache for a few weeks after I had a conversation with this guy. And I, <laughs> and I probably didn't explain it very well that, there, but, um, do yeah. You, do you think, to, totally sci-fi for a second here, do you think that there's a world, I, so I had a friend who, had a who's who uh, was talking to Larry Page, the CEO of Google, one mm-hmm. day, and uh, talking about robots and and whatnot. And they got into a discussion, and and Larry Page seemed to not really care if humans survive because maybe we create robots that are smarter than humans, and that that's just the next step in evolution. Like, is there a world where we create some sort of life form that you know? I mean, if you if if humans vanished off the face of the earth right the second uh it would be really sad because no one would be able to listen to this podcast but beyond that you know there are things that would continue to run for maybe hundreds of years thousands of years who knows um uh some of my kids toys that don't stop bleeping and making noises i'm sure would still be going a thousand years from now you know is do you think that there's a scenario where where the next step in the evolution of humans is that we create some sort of other life that's robotic or plant-like or something that that survives us? Well, I think if you... So I do actually think that if you could create a AI that had like a qualitative conscious experience that was equivalent to us or surpassed us, then there really isn't much of a value difference between whether us and our sort of, you know, meat sacks continue or whether it, it you know, life continues on these on silicon or whatever. I think what's scary is that you could create something and not really ever know that it's conscious. And then, um, you know, if it wiped us out, then that's kind of a freaky situation where you have these sort of zombie robots that are, are, are dominating things. But, um, in the, in the book, I, I compare, 
sort of this incredible explosion of technology, which is definitely a novel thing on the planet, to a period in Earth history called the Cambrian Explosion, where uh, 543 million years ago, before that, you just, uh, for the most part, you just have these sort of like, um, sort of boring, jellyish animals on the planet. And then suddenly, um, there's just this explosive arms race where all this new stuff shows up, where you have these things developing exoskeletons and they start hunting each other. And then there's predator and prey, and it's just this crazy feedback loop. And it goes on to um, basically uh, everything that follows in Earth history is because of this one incredible, innovative moment in Earth history. And I am undecided about whether we're in a similar moment now where, you know, technology is something new and the planet's been totally transformed in the exact same or in a similar way as this period a half billion years ago. Um, but I'm not sure, are we in this new era of sort of a technological um, and possibly quite beautiful, creative sort of period in Earth history? Or is this just going to be a completely bizarre blip where um, this technology and all the um, innovation and stuff sort of wipes us out pretty quickly? And if you're a geologist 100 million years from now looking at the fossil record, rather than seeing this big period of, you know, the, the dawn of technological life, you just see this sudden mass extinction, then it goes back to things, just sort of animals hunting each other and things like that. So you're saying that the, the, that, that period, that Cambrian explosion of, uh, is, a, is analogous to what's happening now? I mean, it's, it's, you have four billion years of Earth history where it's pretty boring. There's even a period in Earth history from 1.8 to 8, 1.8 billion years ago to 800 million years ago that's called the boring billion. And it's called that by geologists, which sort of gives you an idea of how little happened. And then you have a thing called the Cambrian explosion, which actually shocked Darwin. He thought, wow, this is, this is sort of surprising that all this complex life suddenly just sort of explodes on the scene um, a half billion years ago. And, and it's because basically, you know, life started or animal life started weaponizing and having this arms race and developing all these incredible new tools and strategies. And it totally changed the course of, of uh, evolution and the history of the planet. And so I think maybe we could be at the dawn of a similarly uh, transformative period in Earth history if we're smart and we don't wipe ourselves out in the next few centuries. But I think all that depends on whether we're smart in the next few decades. You know, we could have this expansive crazy future or we could just be this asteroid or super volcano that basically happens. But so you, you, so you talk a lot about volcanoes yeah. and it, but we don't necessarily live in an era where there are super volcanoes anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that, is the equivalent of that? These kind of super hurricanes we're starting to see and, uh, and these like super heat waves that are leading to these mass fires or are these, are these just completely different entities? So the analogy between volcanoes and today, uh, you know, hurricanes are certainly becoming more intense and that's because the, the atmosphere, you know, the atmosphere is warmer and there's more water vapor and there's more energy in the atmosphere. But the analogy between the volcanoes I talk about in the book and the ones today, um, or the volcanoes in the book and what we're doing today is that, um, and these are super rare th- things that happen once every hundred million years or so, but um, the vol- these volcanoes so the biggest one ever was in Russia and it caused the biggest mass extinction ever. And enough lava came out of it that it could cover the lower 48 United States a a kilometer deep. So a completely off the charts event. Um, But what actually killed everything on the planet is all the gases that came out of the volcano. And the most important one was CO2. It got really warm because CO2 causes global warming, which we've understood since the 1860s. Um, And a great quote that a paleontologist 
uh, told me is that the Earth doesn't care if CO2 is from Volvos or volcanoes. It does the exact same thing. So uh, the other important thing to note about this volcano is that when it came up, it it burned through one of the world's biggest coal basins. So this magma is burning up all this carbon-rich rocks, injecting it all into the atmosphere, and we're basically doing the same thing voluntarily. We are finding coal and carbon-rich rocks all over around the world, digging them up and putting them into the atmosphere. And, you know, there's no economic motive for the volcanoes to do it, but, you know, the, the atmosphere doesn't care if there's an economic motive. We're doing the exact same thing, basically. So we are the super volcanoes. Yeah, we're the super volcano. It's a better, it's a better analogy than the asteroid, basically, actually. Huh, that's really daunting. Do you do anything differently as a result of all the reporting you've done? Like, do you ride a bicycle to New York <laughs> City and back? Do you, you know, try not to fly or, you know, use a car that has gas or anything like that? Uh, I definitely minimize my flying. and But I would say that um, the, you know, the personal steps you can take are great. And it is definitely good to live sort of a um, a life where you're where you're mindful of the resources that you're using. But the way we're going to defeat, or the way we might, you know, overcome this or sort of change the um, direction that we're going in, all of these decisions I feel sort of have to be made at the top. We have to totally transform our energy system. So when you turn on a light, there's not really much you can do about that. Um, other than vote for politicians who make it a priority to derive the energy and, you know, for the local utilities from renewable resources. So I think voting is the most important thing you can do. And I've been, I've been encouraged um, recently with the change in rhetoric where pe- some people are starting to see this as sort of a, an emergency because it really is. We're going to need sort of like a world war effort to um, transform the energy system in the next few decades. When you, but but one of the things that's you know I totally agree with you. But one of the things that is the one of the problems is that we live in a modern world. Like you know you could say like okay I'm going to drive an electric car, mm-hmm. and I'm going to you know bring my own grocery bags to 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 the grocery store, uh, and things like that, which are great, and we should all do those anyway. But you know there are 103,000 airplanes that fly through the sky every day, which without question cause more harm than than that Volvo. Yeah. So. Is, isn't part of it just that this modern society we live in that we can't seem to even ever put the brakes on? Yeah. I mean, uh, f- flying in an airplane is way more carbon intensive. I mean, you take a couple flights a year and you've basically, you know, driven across country a few times, similar like carbon emissions from a car. But airline carbon emissions don't take up that big of a chunk. It really is that if we can power our societies through renewables. I mean, we have to stop burning coal immediately. If we keep burning coal, then, you know, the world actually could end. I know, you know, that hyperbole is thrown around too much, but if we burned all the coal on the planet, it would be basically game over. Um, So if we stop burning coal, we start using renewables, and even, I think, so I consider myself, you know, left of center, obviously, but on the left there's sort of this um, fear of nuclear. And I think nuclear really has to play a big role because that's, you know, zero carbon emissions from nuclear. And um, I think if we can tackle these big point source uh, emitters, you know, if you drive an electric car, but the electricity is generated from a coal plant, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Mm. It really is the big central ways that we generate power. 
Um, and yet we we have a president who wants to keep coal, even though it only accounts for 50,000 jobs in the United States, whereas green jobs are 375,000 or so. It, it seems like the most illogical part of what we're doing is is a, is political. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's that stat that there are more yoga teachers in the country than coal workers, um, but you don't see politicians pandering to them. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What the, I don't know what the political solution is. I really write about earth science and how the plant, yeah, yeah, like no, how, just, how we I'm can just, expect. It's, yeah. Well, it's interest, but it, what's interesting is that you write about earth science, and yet the the results of earth science are political. Totally, um, and um, it seems like you know you we're we're desk the only solutions to the problems that you are discovering are political solutions um which is you know kind of mind-boggling within itself yeah i would say um, though i would say though that there are you know there's the facts which are scientific and they're you know in an ideal world 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 are apolitical but you can imagine that you could have more state-driven or more market-driven solutions i have opinions about like which one works better but um you know just addressing climate change i don't think should be a political issue which is what's so frustrating when you see the rhetoric about it okay so i have a a couple last questions for you Mm -hmm. um before we let you go so one thing is if you had to if you could do one thing right now and you're only allowed to do one thing uh to change the direction that we are heading headed from a climate perspective um, and a possible mass extinction perspective, what would the one thing you do, what would it be? Um, I guess I would just sort of stick with my geological theme, which is that I think if we're to endure into the future for anything like geological time, so, so far we've only been around for, you know, an absolute uh, subliminal amount of time in earth history that, learning more about earth history and appreciating uh, sort of it could seem depressing but how sort of insignificant we are um, so far and um, starting to reckon with what it would take for human civilization to be sustainable and endurable and starting to think geologically could really help us out as a species because right now we're thinking on these election cycles and sort of twitter timescales um and we're, we haven't proven as a species yet that we are capable of, of um, persisting into, you know, even a remotely significant period of Earth history. So I think sort of changing our mindset and starting to think about what it will take to, you know, really live on this planet um, sustainably is the thing that I would and that I'm trying to impress upon people with my you know, writing and research. It's, no, it's 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 a it's a great answer actually. It's like a, you know, I would have thought you said, oh, we would stop coal or this that and the other, but I think it's definitely a, stop it's coal. A, <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's an interesting point to say that you know it's it's education really that um, and which I think is the answer to pretty much everything is education. So uh, when you were talking to, and I'm curious from your own perspective too, but when you were talking to these paleontologists and and essentially scientists that have researched the history of of the earth and you yourself, do any of you guys believe that there's a reason for all this, that there's there's a higher power over there somewhere, like God, whatever you want to call it, or do you kind of just see us as a... Um, we were once little cone-shaped things living in the ocean that eventually learned how to build Twitter. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I sort of take a, um, you know, I would never call myself a, a Buddhist or anything like that, but there's certainly sort of Buddhist overtones to the idea that we are we're part of this system. There's this sort of hubris to think of ourselves as outside of it and this totally new um, phenomenon on the, on the planet. But we are part of a system that occasionally um, veers off the rails and then the planet over hundreds of thousands of years sort of recovers and that this has all happened before and that we're not really that, that special and that we're, um, you know, there's this sort of eternal return uh, theme to to my work, which for me has given me a lot of perspective because I've also like when I was writing the book, I was going through a lot of personal, um, you know, tragedy and things like that. And taking this long term geological perspective that, you know, the Earth's been around long before us. It's going to be around a long time after us. And maybe the pl- maybe the universe has been going on forever and it's going to go on forever. And there's going to be lots of uh, planets and people like me and you having these conversations. And I don't know. I find something comforting about that. Um, so you do think that there's some higher purpose to it all, but we just don't know what it is? I don't know. I Got I wouldn't call myself an atheist because I think that's too definitive. Um, I just sort of like to dwell, it's just, it, I like it's to dwell just on the mystery. You like to dwell on it. No, it's interesting because when you talk about, and I ask everyone this question, it doesn't matter who's on the show, but when you talk about, you know, the fact that we are just a little blip, um, you know, you know, I think the thing I had Sam Harris mm-hmm. on the show a year ago, and the thing that he said, you know, he doesn't believe that there's a god or there's a right. you know or anything like that, or um, some some guy sitting on a cloud with a long beard, but right. or a woman, um, but he he does believe that there's something to consciousness, right. that there's yeah. some some larger thing to this, and it's interesting because I wonder if one thing that we haven't discovered is were dinosaurs conscious? Did they want to be writers when they grew up? You oh, know? I'm sure like, they were it's like, yeah, you do. You think they were, I mean, there's, there's reasons to think that T-Rex was smarter than a chimp. So if you don't think chimps are conscious, then you shouldn't, shouldn't then, talk to chimps. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what, yeah. Mm-hmm. sorry. So, well, but so that, so I guess the theory, you know, the question is when you, when you talk about us as being all the ultimate consciousness, I guess, um, were you, I mean, are you, th- you know, you put it onto the scale of like, oh, we've just been here for a blip. It's, it's like, well, what's the, what is the reason for that? The whole earth, like, if, as you said, we tend to think of ourselves as being outside the system, but we're really a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's just interesting to think about that from a perspective of, of why. Totally. Um, yeah. Which is why I think, and I talk about it in the book as well, that sort of this idea that the earth's better off without us. I don't think so. I think conscious experience is, in, is, maybe the most interesting thing in the universe. And it really would be, would be losing a lot if we wiped ourselves out. Not to say that other animals aren't conscious, but I just think that we're fascinating creatures and it'd be great if we could, you know, not wipe ourselves out. What are the, and what are the paleontologists that you spoke to think about all this stuff? Or did you not talk about this, this topic? Um, I'm just curious, like what their overall feeling is as people who specifically look at it from a scientific perspective. I think a lot of them are comforted by this, like this similar geological view where, you know, yeah, it could get bad in the next few centuries, but you know, it's just going to keep on going after that. And, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can, you know, eventually we're going to die everything, you know, there's, there's uh, protons could start falling apart. And if you go far enough, far enough in the future and, 
So whether we're around forever, does that make our experience any more valuable or not? I, I don't, I don't think so. I think you really have to sort of live in the moment and, and that's a cliche, but sort of, I think there's something to this mindfulness thing where this is sort of the only moment you'll ever know and you should appreciate it. All right. So here's my very, very last question to you. You can go back in time to any, to witness any of the mass extinctions. Mm. Uh, You're allowed to, but you're only allowed to go to one. Mm. And I'm not sure if I want to ask the questions if if you have to stay there. Maybe you can come back and tell us about it. But do you want to, which one do you want to go to? Is it Triassic? Is it Permian? Like which, which mass extinction would you like to go back and witness? But you can only see one of them. So this, this, my answer would change, you know, weekly, but, um, today I would say I would definitely want to go back and see the worst mass extinction of all time. This thing called the end Permian, which was, uh, before the dinosaurs were around, but there were still weird sort of creatures on land and things like that. Um, and the reason I would want to go back is because it, it was absolutely horrific. Um, but I don't think we know quite how horrific it was. And, one of the most fascinating conversations I had was with uh, this Penn State geologist, Lee Kump, and he had this idea that, you know, you have caused this, you put all the CO2 in the air, it gets really warm, and he started running this on computer models, and he found that it was so warm that these computer models would start spitting out these things called hypercanes, which are hurricanes with 500-mile-an-hour winds, and they would have been going over the these oceans that were so hot that these bacteria would be, um, they'd be there'd be no oxygen in them and the bacteria would be producing this, you know, swamp gas called hydrogen sulfide so that you would have these like just apocalyptic hurricanes sweeping up all this like poison swamp gas out of the ocean and just completely obliterating everything on land. And this is all theoretical now, but I would be fascinated to go back and see just how grisly it got because basically everything possible went wrong and it was the most extreme event in earth history. And it would be sort of fun from, uh, you know, you know, just eating your popcorn and sitting back and watching it, <laughs> watching it happen. So. I didn't say you, I didn't say you were allowed to bring popcorn. On <laughs> okay, <this trip>. yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you got to eat what they eat back then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bad, like uh, really fib- fibrous, fi- yeah, fibrous roots and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Peter, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Uh, the book is The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions, and hopefully not the one that's coming up. Uh, Peter Brandon, thank you. Yeah, thank you. We still have time to save the world. That's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Not a lot of time, though. Right. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You're listening to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So there are so many incredible shows in our archives that you won't want to miss. In fact, there are now over 90 of them. You can hear me talking with celebrities like Conan O'Brien, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Tom Arnold, world-famous CEOs like Bob Iger and Dara Karzowski, people who have been sued by Donald Trump like Tim O'Brien, the journalist, others who have hung out with Jared and Ivanka like Emily Jane Fox, and even people who have been personally investigated by Fox News, including our very own Gabe Sherman. There are so many people to pick from, including comedians Bartunde Thurston, tech experts, news hounds, and even a magician that I once spoke to. You will not want to miss that one. And there are more authors in our archives than could fit on most people's bookshelves. Go back into the archives, give them a listen. You will not be disappointed. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. 
John Kelly, the one, the only. Uh, I know we only have 12 years to live before the earth explodes into a fiery, bally, flamey mess. But there's been a lot that happened this week uh, in the news. Um, should we, where should we start? Well, we can start with uh, an article that uh, The Hive published on Wednesday night from Cliff Sims' new book. Um, uh, you know, give us, give us, give us a little context of who this. Well, who sure, this yeah, is. no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give some context here. Um, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, is famous among um, uh, for many reasons for writing the book uh, Team of Rivals, which explained how Lincoln picked his cabinet and influenced how um, Obama picked his cabinet. And Cliff Sims, who worked uh, for the Trump White House for 500 days, has written a book called Team of Vipers, which is, um, I guess, worse than rivals. These are people who hate each other and just attempt to nuke each other behind their backs all the time. So uh, there have been a couple leaks from, from Sims' book. We published uh, an excerpt, a couple thousand word excerpt on Wednesday night in which Sims uh, depicts how Kellyanne Connolly was sort of the um, – the, the the most um, nunchuck wielding uh, multifaceted um, uh, primetime player in this viper's den um, uh, criticizing her colleagues to to the media and it you know it's um, there, there's one really sort of amazing moment in it when he's watching her texting various reporters about uh, um, with comments that are I suppose somewhat disparaging about various members of the uh, the White House inner circle at at that time and. Someone was saying to me that it was a, a water is wet moment. Like this is sort of what ex- exactly what when you close your eyes and wonder what, what are these people really doing all day long as we worry about grave matters like climate change or um, peace in the Middle East or the opioid crisis. Uh, top White House officials are um, uh, are backstabbing each other. Of, of course, yeah. I mean, it's. It's, uh, there's some great quotes in the story. Uh, I, as I've said earlier, and um, uh, that consumes a lot of my day. Actually, is I would I would pay. I'm, I can't actually say how much I would pay, but it would be a lot of money to see Kellyanne Conway and George Conway sit across from each other at dinner for two hours and read each other's tweets aloud. Or even well, I'd love I would, to know what they're up to. I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, Kellyanne Conway is a um, let me put it this way. There have been a lot of knuckleheads to pass through the Trump White House, and uh, Conway is not one. Um, uh, you know, she may be uh, malicious in her intent in some ways. This this article certainly uh, depicts that. But she is a savvy operator. And, uh, and George Conway is a highly pedigreed attorney. And I have no idea what they're up to now, Nick, but it does seem like they're playing some sort of Vulcan chess that will only reveal itself down the line. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. Speaking of Vulcan chess, I have a question for you, and maybe you have found some sort of insight buried under a book or a magazine or something in the Vanity Fair newsroom. So the uh, the government shutdown continues. The Senate bills failed today. Uh, it looks like what's interesting is mm-hmm. is a lot of the headlines are actually blaming the Democrats this time, uh, which is not a good look for the Democrats, even though most of the country in recent polls has said that they blame Donald Trump for the shutdown. How long can this go on for? It's It, it, it seems like neither party is going to give up, in the, except, I mean, the Republicans could give up and uh, and 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 side with the Democrats to just to get the government open again, but it doesn't seem like Trump 
is going to ever, I mean, this could go on forever. Well, yeah, let's hope not. I mean, there, there certainly is no immediate end in sight, but I, I think that one, um, uh, one sign that we are reaching a, a climax of some type is what's going on with the air traffic controllers. And I, I will say to you in full disclosure, I'm, I have to fly, um, out to LA for a day on Sunday. Actually, maybe I should, maybe if I get in early enough, we can have dinner. Um, but uh, we should I'm, invite all the listeners too. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet your address. Um, I'm a little bit nervous that uh, it's possible that uh, you know my plane will be directed by a like rightfully aggrieved air traffic controller. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but um, but the statement that that was issued by an air traffic control union on Wednesday night that calls this unprecedented is it seems to me the first step of a coordinated attempt um, to uh, to explain how this could really uh, r- r- effectively ob- obliterate the lives of a lot of ordinary people. I mean, it's it's really hurting, you know, the the, the fortunes of eight hundred thousand people. But but to be totally crass with you, like that's not the elites that are covering this and are, are and are creating you know uh, ideation around this and talking points and 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 running the media around this. But I swear to God. The minute that, like, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, K Street executive has to spend four hours at a, at a TSA line because there aren't enough people working in the airports because of the shutdown, they will be lobbying hard to open the motherfucking government pretty soon. Well, what's so it's what's it's really stressful is that it doesn't seem like anyone but them can do anything about it. You know, I mean, I I have some friends that work for the government. I I know uh, a couple both government employees and they're borrowing money from their family right now you know they're behind on their bills and um they're telling me how utterly stressful it is and you know they're calling congress people and and their bosses and nothing is doing anything and it seems like um the only way something is going to happen is either if there's a catastrophe which could which easily could happen you know hopefully it's not you john but there could be a massive plane (laughs) crash or You know, there could something could will happen, uh, or somebody, of course, will have to wait in a long line. And I, I just, it just is insane to me that Trump thinks this is a good strategy. Uh, I think that when he gets up there in 2020 and has to debate people, and they say, "Hey, you, you, you own the longest government shutdown in history," that is going to be something that 800,000 people will not forget. You know, can I just interrupt you briefly to say I, I think that you just made a point that it has been sort of the meta point that's. Um, it's been like the lead motif of the of the Trump presidency. We've been saying all along, all this terrible stuff that's happened, and there have been many, many terrible things. The the Muslim ban, the Sean Spicer's crazy lying about the inauguration, um, the crazy Stephen Miller speech, uh, the, uh, most recently border separations. Um, these have all been things that have more or less been dealt with. I'm not saying there has not been significant horrific pain for people who were directly affected by them. There has been. But they've more or less been situations that were able to be resolved politically or in, in policy, or, or, or they didn't, like they didn't, you know, um, uh, metastasize out of control. And all along, the sort of you know uh, wise people have said, "Well, what happens when there's a dot dot dot, right?" And and the fear was always that the the, the dot 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 would be a self-created thing. It wouldn't be a surprise attack of of a horrific nature, like terrorism, a natural disaster, or something like that. What we're encountering here is a totally West Wing man-made catastrophe um, uh, should one result from it. Like that would be literally like saying to um, uh, the president, do you want to create a drought? 
you know do you want to create a, a, a massive hurricane um do you want to create like you know some some form of of um of of you know horrific event like th- that's what we are risking here um yeah. the, the times has great data on how much money workers from various agencies have lost out on two paychecks is a lot man we, we both have two kids like if i miss two paychecks um uh i would be oh I'd yeah be I'd, sweating. Be, I'd be yeah, yeah i'd be in some serious trouble um yeah yeah, well, uh, hopefully it will end soon, um, and it doesn't end in catastrophe. But I, I don't have my money on on the former um, no, or I the know. latter. So no, it's very, it's very sad. It's very, um, very, very sad. Last but not least, speaking of catastrophes, uh, I wrote a piece this week about Cheryl Sandberg is out in mm-hmm. the world on a comeback, and um, Davos is always a good place to uh, <laughs> yeah. It, she's, send your right message. It's interesting. She's she's out there doing this big PR push, saying that she wants to, uh, um, you know, that that Facebook has changed. They've learned their lesson. You uh, you name it. And uh, and what's so fascinating is it is it's clearly a PR push. I've been doing this thing for the last a uh, couple well, of months. Uh, clearly, yeah. No, I don't think anyone um, would argue. Yeah, that. yeah, there's nothing that's changed. But I've been doing this thing for the last couple of months where I, I you know, every couple of days, Google uh, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg just to see what the top, you know, 50, 100 headlines are. And for the past couple of months, they've been berating her. Um, and, uh, and now they're starting to change course a little bit. And I think it's a really bad strategy by Sandberg because at the end of the day, Facebook has not changed. The, it is the same people who run the company. The only person who has been ousted as a result of something that happened two years ago now with Cambridge Analytica was Elliot Trague, who is the director of communications, right. who was probably the most thoughtful person at the company at that high and, level. And to be fair, I think, I think that he resigned, was retained, for a, was enjoying a long resignation, and then took a bullet for Cheryl at the end, right? That was yes. sort of the. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean. Took a bull for someone. If someone had to go yeah, for and, someone, for someone, yeah, for for for, for someone in the executive suite. He he'd been doing this a long time, and you know, and that was it. And so uh, um, he looks like Arliss a little bit, doesn't he? Kind of like Robert <laughs> Wool. <laughs> he's a really nice guy. I like him a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying he's not. I'm just uh, it's a, um, he's very yeah. and very thoughtful. You know, I've had conversations with lots of people at the company, and they. They, there's no nuance. It's like uh, Facebook is here to stay, and it's amazing, and it does nothing yeah. wrong. And uh, and then there's people like um, like Elliot, who of course are, are, are very thoughtful about things. And yeah. I think what's so interesting is that and this would have com- unquestionably been handled differently. I think if if he was still on that job, I think that yeah. But a- but it's but what's you know the company has done nothing to change its own. Uh, leadership. It's the same board, same CTO, same CPO, same COO. It's like, you know, same everyone uh, and nothing, nothing has changed. And, um, and I think that uh, it's going it, to, this is a, a really bad PR strategy that's going to continue to hurt uh, Facebook in, in, in the long term. You know, if the company really wants to change, it needs to start getting rid of people at the top and putting in, putting in new people that are quite frankly, more ethical uh, and morally minded business folks. So yeah, I, I wonder know. how long like the you know how much bigger can Facebook get right like from a, from a growth perspective. At a certain point, um, I was listening to um, to the Pivot podcast that um, uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway do an excellent podcast, um, and they made an an interesting point that that sort of woke is the business strategy of 2019, which I think is you know largely true. 
at some point, you'd have to think woke would be face like would be a wise strategy for Facebook. You know that, that, that there will come a, to- a point, even just like being selfishly, economically selfish, that, that the company would realize, okay, we cannot grow much larger than half of the globe. Um, <laughs> we are fucking jerks. We rip off people's data and sell it to pretty much anyone who wants it, and um, uh, and like we, the only way we can retain more audience is to authentically make people like us. Like to actually do what every other brand is trying to do now and, and create a, a, a meaningful dialogue with the consumer, um, a trust-based dialogue. Do you think it'll get there, Nick? Nope. I think that what well, I think that what well I don't I just I don't I think it's like you you it's it would be like you saying hey um, we have a we just got a zebra we bought it for the kids we were trying to get a horse but we got a zebra by accident in the mail do you think I can get rid of the black stripes on the zebra is that possible like it, you're right. not changing this beast you are it is what it is and there's nothing that is going to change it I don't think that you know it's interesting there was a really funny little anecdote swirling around this week from Jack Dorsey. CEO of Twitter, who uh, was interviewed by Rolling Stone, and and the the interviewee had said, um, asked him what was the what's the you know best memory you have of or the funniest moment or whatever he is that he asked about about Mark Zuckerberg, and Jack told the story that Jack's actually told me before, which he told it a lot more eloquently in the Rolling Stone interview, where he said he went to to Zuck's house for dinner one night, and Zuck was in the phase where he was killing his own meat before he ate it and oh had, yeah right he had six goats in the backyard and he and and he had killed the goat for dinner and he and jack said how did you kill it and he said uh, zuckerberg said he tased it and then he he sliced it open with a knife i don't i'm not like we live in a world where we don't do stuff like that most people don't do stuff like that if you live in alaska or montana i'm sure you do but like most people don't do that and i think they would have a really hard time doing it Zuckerberg does not, uh, and I think it, you know it's like this telling moment of who he is. There is a, there is a part of him that I don't think it's not wired like the rest of us, and I yeah. don't think that he's going to change anytime soon. Uh, and I don't think the company is going to change. I think there's one of two things, three things that happen. One is it just continues on its course and you know remains a billion, two billion users for X number of years or whatever. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think the second scenario is they end up getting broken up when there is a democratic. Um, president or you know or Senate House whatever uh, even it could even happen under the un, under this Democratic House. Um, well, see, I wonder though if my, my um, deep suspicion is that Sandberg leaves is that, is that if a Democrat wins in 2020, which is still a significant if, then Sandberg leaves for a cabinet job. This this will all be long behind her by then. You know, I mean, and, and whatever ten scandals are to come will be will be distant. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary how fast things move now. It's it, we're talking on a Thursday, and and the the BuzzFeed Mueller uh, story, which was the the biggest story in the world for three days, is now literally, like you know, it, it, it it's inert. It did, as if it didn't happen. So, she'll outrun this, I think, and be working possibly in an administration. What if she has to confront the regulation of her former company, which she has, um, I'm sure, in a blind trust somewhere, you know, uh, a, a billion dollar of uh, of stock options. Um, it'll be. A fantastic uh, um, internal conflict. It will be amazing, and I will be here to record a podcast about it. Speaking of which, I think that should wrap us up for today. John Kelly, thank you so much. Have a safe flight. Um, I want to take a take a minute to thank our guest today, 
Peter Brannon, and of course you, John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That is me. You can find these on applepodcastradio.com, anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave the best review you've left for anything in your entire life while you're there. Thanks to the wonderful folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and we'll see you all next week, hopefully with no government shutdown, but probably with one.